All right, welcome to another week on uh, Twitter Spaces here with Cap and Trade. I am your host, Texans Cap. You can call me Cap for short or TC. Tonight we have another great show planned. We have Brad Spielberger with Pro Football Focus joining us tonight. So if you're new to our spacious discussion, we generally discuss the Texans, but tonight, especially tonight, we'll we'll venture outside of the Texans and talk a little across the league, and we're all, always open to talking salary cap contracts, anything else that's on your mind. Brad is just as an aficionado of the salary cap and contracts as I pretend to be. So we'll shoot for one hour. You know, we'll cap it at one hour tonight. Um, on your screen, on the bottom left of your of your device, there should be a um, mic icon. You can press that if you want to request speaking rights to ask your question. I will try to call out the person's name who's due up next to try to give you a little heads up so that you're ready to go when I call on you. Please note that this Spaces session is recorded and will be redistributed as a podcast probably on Thursday night. I've gotten pretty good at getting them out within two days. And like I said, if this is your first time joining us, this is kind of a listener-driven show. I have some some talking points that Brad and I will hit on, and then we'll we'll mix in some questions from the from the crowd. And with that, we'll uh, we'll jump right in. Like I said, we got Brad Spielberger with Pro Pro Football Focus on here. Brad, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How about yourself, TC? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. So um, before we dive in, why don't you tell the folks what exactly you do with with Pro Football Focus nowadays? Yeah, so you're being very modest. Everyone should know at the start. Uh, I originally uh, started doing salary cap research and contract work at OverTheCap.com and probably bugged uh, TC with questions and DMs on a daily basis. Um, and so I'm very grateful to him and, and all he's taught me and helped me along the way. And so, yeah, so now I work full-time for Pro Football Focus, I'm working in the salary cap and contract space. Uh, you know, trade deadline obviously would fall under that umbrella. And so we have some, some articles out looking at some potential trades, uh, but also work a little bit on the back end as well. Um, you know, kind of behind the scenes, working with the teams a little bit, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been about a year now and it's been great. That's great. I mean, I've, I've been a, a big fan of um, pro football focus. I mean, uh, you know, there's always everybody's opinion of it out there, but for me and what I do as someone who doesn't unfortunately have the time to sit and watch film, I just I have to rely on pro pro football focus. We'll call them PFF because I just can't keep saying that over and over. <laughs> we'll we'll say you know I, I rely on PFF's eyes to kind of be the eyes for me and give me you know a kind of overall snapshot of what what's being seen in the game and and then rely on some other folks to validate that data. So it works well and it and if uh, if my memory serves me correct, you did a book with with uh, Jason Fitzgerald. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Jason Fitzgerald at Over the Cap and I wrote a book about draft pick trades, um, you know, draft trade values, looking at the, the historical Jimmy Johnson chart that's kind of infamous for creating the marketplace for trades. And so we examined that and maybe poke some holes in that methodology. And, and uh, yeah, that book is called The Drafting Stage. Yeah, yeah, I got that in my collection of uh, I, I don't read very many books, but I have Jason's book and I have your book and I've read them both. So. That, that helps me out a ton. Um, there's a lot of the methodology within that book is, is fantastic. It spells it out. Well, if, if you haven't read it, it is a, uh, it's a good quality read, especially with the kind of things that, that Brad and I kind of dive, dive into. So it's a, it's, it spells it out very plain English. You know, it's, it's a good read. So with that news of the day, news of the week, news of the last hour, the Deshaun Watson trade. So we'll dive into that first. And, you know, I, I think there was a lot of confusion rolling around in the timeline today with between what John McClain wrote in his article today saying that the team has essentially agreed to, agreed to some kind of compensation, you know, potentially getting the three ones, may not get as many twos out of it. And then it seems to be kind of backtracking a little bit. You know, it seems I talked to a couple of folks in Miami and it seems the owner over there has kind of got things on hold pending – he wants, a, you know, Stephen Ross wants the Deshaun Watson legal situation to be sorted out a little more, get a little more clarity on it versus what we're at right now. And obviously that's not going to happen anytime soon. You know, Watson's not even, if my memory serves me correct, Watson's not even set to be deposed until February. So, you know, 48 hours ago, I was pretty optimistic that something might happen between now and the trade deadline next Tuesday. And then about an hour ago, my hot, my hopes were just kind of, 
destroyed and I don't think that anything's going to happen, whether that's good or bad, you know, and I think about these things and yeah, it was exciting to see, see this trade go down. And I'm looking at, looking at it from a different perspective than a typical fan. I'm not looking at it as I'm ready to get Watson out of town. I'm more looking at it as I'm curious to see what Casario gets out of this and just kind of evaluate his huge, this huge trade that's going to be the defining moment of his career with Houston. So that's my more optimism of seeing the trade versus just seeing Watson go and the team move on. So from that, you know, we, we see Miami obviously has the most capital, you know, they've got the one, this, this, the one coming up that is actually, they, they got from San Francisco and then they got the two ones in 2023. So that sounds like the three ones that they're going to get. So it sounds like Miami is the front runner, Dave Tepper and, and Carolina is trying to squeeze in there, but he, they just don't have near the draft capital that, that Miami does. And then Philly, I just, I can't get a read on that. You know, it, talked to Mike K and it that seems Philly is very intent on just waiting to let it play out. And the more I think about it, you know, it'd be great to get this done now. And the more I think about it, it's probably better that they wait until March to get it done. That way you have potentially more teams coming to play. Maybe Watson's willing to open up the, the no, the no trade clause to accept more teams, more, more teams come to play drives up the price a little bit more. So what are your overall thoughts, Brad, on, on what we're seeing with the Watson potential trade coming down? Yeah, so, you know, from bird's eye view at, at first glance, I think it's interesting for Roger Goodell to say today effectively that they don't have information or enough information, I guess I should say, to, to make a definitive decision. You know, I've seen a lot of people compare this to the Ezekiel Elliott situation or similar situations where without an actual you know legal matter coming down, there was still a punishment handed down by the NFL um, but they, they do their own fact gathering, and so they they clearly you know are sticking by the the belief that they have not been given enough to do that. Um, but it, it is interesting. It, it, does a trade you know serve as the catalyst to them force them to make that decision? Um, like you said, I think there was a lot of optimism about 48 hours ago, and now I'm kind of reading it differently. You know, what, to to hear that the, the Dolphins owner wants to know definitively what the situation is going to be, he's not going to get a straight answer there. I mean, there is no straight answer there. So. Um, I'm now leading towards we probably don't see him move. And then the last piece, the Eagles. I think it's interesting. Obviously, Deshaun has the no-trade clause, so he can veto any move he doesn't want to do. I think if the Eagles, even if he was not a fan, if they were the only team making an offer that Houston was willing to accept, I'm guessing he'd probably go ahead and do it just to get out of Houston. But Howie Roseman, the GM in Philadelphia, has shown already a couple times this year that he is patient. He is not going to make a you know a panic move. Um, you know, traded Zekerts at the deadline. Most people thought he would be off the roster a long time ago. Um, and even the Carson Wentz saga really dragged on for longer um, than a lot of people expected. So I, I'm with you on, on the team situation. I now think Carolina. Um, I know they traded their second round pick for Sam Darnold. They traded their third round pick for C.J. Henderson, so on and so forth. But I think they're desperate, and they might just offer as as much as possible if it comes to it. Yeah, and that the owner there, Dave Tepper, is an extremely aggressive owner. From from the limited time that he's owned that team, he's, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's the rich one of the richest owners out of the 32 owners from his overall net net worth. So I think he's going to be aggressive, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get Watson, and that's. Cl- close to home I say close to home it's 200 you know approximately 200 miles away but that's relatively close to home for Watson and and I would like to think that you know going there with Matt Rule seems to be a, a pretty solid coach a very good leader and a very you know in my opinion a good GM Scott Fitter I know it's his only first year but he came from came from Seattle and that's a good pedigree to come in from and so I think that organization you know, it's, 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 they have good, a lot of young, good players. And I think that's where their assets are going to kind of fall. And I'm, you know, it's interesting that Carolina, if they don't have the draft capital to offer to meet up with Miami, then they're, they're going to have to offer up players to offset that capital and therefore kind of almost flip your roster. And not saying that they're going to go to a point where the Texans are at, but it seems like you're almost going to reset your roster for a year and a half if you go down that path. And we, you know, no, nothing against Deshaun Watson, and he's going to make any team well. But we saw what the Texans did with a good roster last year, and still only had four wins with with Watson at helm. So it's interesting to see how this goes down. You know, uh, we were talking about 
we were talking about earlier about versus whether they should trade now versus wait until the 2022 draft. And it was interesting enough, I've been mistaken for, oh gosh, six months now from a one source of how how far out in the draft that you can you can uh, trade. And then we saw yesterday where St. Louis trade or St. Louis Los Angeles Rams traded three years out on the draft. And so I hit up another source that I that I trust very well, and he said, yeah, you can do. Th- you, you can do three years worth of draft capital now, and then in the fourth year opens up on draft night. So, you know, maybe Carolina's betting on waiting until draft night versus Miami trying to get it done now. But Carolina definitely would definitely need to wait until draft night to open up that further draft capital. I'm not totally convinced that Casario's intent on getting a lump of draft picks now. I think he would be just as content as having a slew of draft picks over three years versus a lump of draft picks in one and two years. What are your thoughts on, on that concept? Absolutely. I mean, I think from a in a weird way, from a GM perspective, if you were to look at it from I want to keep my job as long as possible, which I think you know a lot of us think that way, you could argue that getting a 2024 first-round pick, that the team might be patient and let you actually make that selection. Not that he's in the hot seat or there are any expectations out of the gate, and there shouldn't be. But, but you know, so there, that's kind of interesting. And, and on double that as well is – Yes, Philadelphia has three first-round picks this year. They're currently slated to be very high picks, but if there's no quarterback in the draft and if Houston is not interested in maybe bringing a Tua Tagovailoa back in the trade, maybe they do like Davis Mills, so maybe they would go with that Philly route if they think they have their quarterback of the future, although I don't know you know, how true that statement is. But the other piece you mentioned I think is very interesting and I think has to happen is there will be players involved if a trade happens. I- I'm confident in that simply because you mentioned the restrictions on trading, you know, a certain amount of years out. And I think pre this awful situation that, that Deshaun has, has created, I think there honestly was not a value that, you know, for Deshaun Watson. Like if you asked me, come up with a trade value for Deshaun Watson, I'd say it exceeds what you're allowed to give away. Unless you wanted to give away four first, four seconds, four thirds. And I still would be like, yeah, that's, that's maybe approaching a fair trade. And that is how I view, you know, a top five quarterback in the NFL. But now that his situation's arisen and now that, you have these restrictions and all that. I, I think from Carolina, we talked about their trades. They now have four, you know, really good cornerbacks. Maybe a Dante Jackson, who's a pending free agent, pretty solid cornerback, could be on the move. Maybe, you know, Houston goes after those edge rushers. I don't know if Brian Burns would be untouchable, one of the better young edge rushers in football. But I do think Houston is going to say, look, we're going to take the risk of some lottery picks with these draft picks, but we need some players too um, just to build a core, build a foundation, and, and have some more sure things, so to speak. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And 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 thinking on that that whole topic of of having a slew of draft picks, another another thing I wanted to kind of hit on here was the methodology of you know trading back. I think I think it's pretty clear. At least today, it's pretty clear. There's going to be no 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 top tier quarterback in the 2022 draft. So at this point. Let's just say, for the sake of this discussion, Texans end up with number three overall in the in the twenty twenty two draft. Unless there is just a franchise changing edge rusher, cornerback, or tackle, and this is assuming they keep Tunsil, you know, at this point, at that point, I think you've got to trade back. and uh, And I know your book kind of dives into this: is the the uh, the hit rate. And the value, the overall value of a number three pick, unless you have just that top tier franchise player available, is really not all that different than having picks eight through fifteen. And I think your hit rate in that eight to fifteen is is just as just as good of a chance as you would with the number three overall pick. And at that point, you move. You know, does does the team try to move back from say in this example from number three? back to the number 10 slot or whatever it is. And with no viable quarterback up there, the tr- the return is not going to be near as strong as like, as like Chris Ballard got from the jets a few years ago when they traded up, you know, at, you're still going to get a, a good amount of value moving back, but I just want to get your thoughts on the hit rate and that kind of overall concept of if you don't have just that game changer there at the top, at the number three pick, you know, there's still plenty of chances to hit and picks as you move down maybe 10 slots plus gaining extra assets, whether it's another first rounder in the first and then the following year or extra ones that same year and extra two things like that. 
Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, our research has shown that, yes, the first couple picks, uh, realistically one and two, you tend to be able to find, you know, true fan franchise-defining players. You're realistically probably taking the first quarterback and the first non-quarterback available, but it does change it for that. And, and I guess one example, speaking of a trade, um, up to number three from number 12 was a long time ago, but Deion Jordan, an edge rusher, uh, Miami Dolphins, convinced or no the Miami Dolphins traded up for him um with the Las Vegas Raiders uh, then the Oakland Raiders um and the compensation like as you mentioned was nowhere near the level of you know the Trey Lance trade or the Sam Darnold trade but still if there's no sure thing and of course there's never a sure thing but like you said if there's no blue chip you know edge rusher or, or left tackle and like you said you have Laramie Tunsil in, in the fold already the odds tell you you're more likely to be retaining a you know more total value if you trade down stockpile some picks you mentioned the future picks. I mean, I think the future picks, there's no better team to talk about than Houston. They trade up. They get to Sean Watson. Yes, he gets hurt, but he actually looks good his rookie year, gets hurt, and then they give the fourth overall pick to the Cleveland Browns, and they go ahead and take Denzel Ward, the cornerback. So you never know how high those picks are going to land. It obviously happened again last year. Um, you know, I don't, I don't need to remind you of and that. And happening, it's but... happening with Seattle right now with the Jets on the Jamal Adams trade. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and the Giants might have a, a decent pick from the Chicago Bears headed their way as well. So, you know, every every team is overconfident. I think the best example of that would be we don't know if it was Miami's decision or Philadelphia's decision, but Miami moves up with Philly from 12 to 6 this year to take Jalen Waddell. They at that time owned their own first round pick and San Francisco's first round pick. I'm guessing I don't know. They made the decision, hey, Philly, we'll give you our pick because in their mind they thought we're going to finish better than the San Francisco 49ers do. And look where they are now. So I think you play into that uncertainty. You play into that randomness and variance. And, yes, I think unless there's a guy there, you should the Houston Texans should trade down and address so many of their spots, still land some really good players, just maybe not at premium positions. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much – confirms my thought on it and chase i see you got your request and you've had it since the beginning we'll get to you in a few minutes man i, I got a couple more couple more items i want to pick on pick with brad about first so another thing going back to the deshaun watson trade there's a lot of talk out there about put, placing conditions on the trade and my opinion is houston needs to stand stand strong and not have any conditions involved with this trade at the at the absolute most, the only condition that may that I would be willing to 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 give up is if he's actually indicted and charged with something. But suspension should not be a condition because you're talking, you know, six maybe ten games of of, of a suspension for a potential twelve ten to twelve year career. So six or eight game suspension on a ten year quarterback doesn't necessitate getting conditions now i think that's partly why houston wants to try to move with this trade sooner rather than later because they're worried about him getting indicted and you know the the grand jury i think has been impaneled but i don't know where they're at with any decisions or anything like that but have you have you heard anything different out there on conditions or how that may play a role in this in this trade yeah, so the condition discussion is very interesting. And I would say, first and foremost, your, your point is, is huge in that we're talking about a franchise quarterback. And so it is different where, look, I would even argue if he was suspended the entire 2022 season, and I knew that as the Philadelphia Eagles or the Carolina Panthers or the Miami Dolphins, I still think I would be okay with that, with the understanding that you, you're going to get several years of control. And like you said, he could potentially play for a decade or more. And so you have to still cook in that risk, take that risk, and maybe use it as leverage to lower the, the you know the compensation ultimately. But as to the, the the indictment, frankly, you know, with my legal background, when they impanel a grand jury, it, it's pretty easy, frankly, to arrive at the decision to indict because, of course, that doesn't mean you're you know guilty or anything like that. It's just there's enough evidence to suggest that you may have committed a crime. And, and frankly, the fact that you even message twenty plus masseuses it might even be enough in its own. So. I, I expect him to be indicted. Um, maybe he'll try to settle to avoid, you know, it going any further. It sounds like he's very staunchly opposed to settling in any capacity. But, no, I think the conditions thing is very interesting. A really interesting example happened last year because of COVID where Marquise Goodwin, the wide receiver, was traded by the Philadelphia Eagles to the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, I, I may have gotten that backwards. But nevertheless, and essentially the, the condition was effectively – 
they weren't sure if he was going to opt out or not. And he eventually did opt out, and he actually reverted back to the Eagles roster, um, and, and they had to kind of you know cut in this offseason and go through all of that. So it, effect, it effectively nullified a trade. So I think that would be the same condition where they would probably set it up to say, you know, if this player is not – you know, reporting to to the building on by X date or, or so on or so forth, or is not allowed to um, for whatever reason, then the trade reverts. But it, it gets tough if you're going to move, you know, a ton of capital or a ton of other players. You know, how do you revert a trade if other players are involved? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a ton of moving parts to this one. And you know, speaking on the whole Watson thing before we move on, to, you know, McLean's you know article today, or at least it was updated today, said that you know the Trade compensation terms have, have been essentially agreed to, at least on the three ones. The message that I got about an hour ago was certain folks within the organization thought the trade was going to go through, thought that they had this deal done and it was going to get done before the trade deadline. And then something changed, especially with the owners meeting happening today. Something changed today, whether the message hasn't been filtered down from Ross to to the Miami front office on what his expectations were on the legal status of Watson. But that's just what I'm hearing is that certain folks thought trade was going through and then just something came to a complete halt today with Stephen Ross saying, I need to know, I need more clar- clarity on the Watson situation. I, I want things to either be to be uh, sorted out or clarified or, you know, just more direction. And so you know, one message that I got was, you know, from somebody down in Miami, it says a Watson trade will happen when one of two things happen. The Watson legal issues mostly resolved or Watson issues not resolved, but price drops to the floor. The price dropping to the floor is not, is going to be a showstopper. Casario is not going to, is not going to back off his, dra- his, his dra- uh, draft demand. So at this point, like we talked about before we move on, I think it's just, I think, Everything is not, nothing's going to happen. Maybe something changes in the next seven days, but based on what we're hearing from the owners meeting, I think this is going to drag out until, <laughs> until the next off season, but the next seven days are going to be going to be a little brutal. So, but speaking of which we, uh, that was 25 minutes on Watson. So we'll move on. And, uh, so we got three requests in here, Chase, Todd, Balake, we'll get to you in just a second. I got a couple other one hit on a potential, some Houston, Houston assets that, uh, Casario may try to move. So, Brad, we'll, we'll we'll shotgun a few of these names. So, I had Brandon Cooks on here, but the note I got today from a few local folks was Brandon Cooks is very unlikely to get moved. But let's just say for the for the sake of argument that he's a potential trade asset, I had it down here as probably like a maybe a second rounder and a swap of day three, late day three pick, something like that. Is that about in line with what you were thinking? Yeah, a little bit more. I had a second and a and a future fifth, so a little bit a little bit pricier than you. I mean, the contract once Houston restructured and pushed a lot of that money down the line, it effectively makes it a two year, you know, fifteen million dollar contract for the acquiring team. And Brandon Cooks, if he shows up in a new city, puts up a thousand yards, he'd become the first receiver in NFL history with a thousand yard season with five different franchises. He's currently only one of two ever to do it for four different franchises. So there's no concerns that he can adjust to a system. He's done it a million times already. Um, I I think his compensation would stick around where it was when he ultimately came to Houston. Well, now you have to trade him, now that I know that stat. I just want him to be (laughs) traded so we can see the fifth thousand-yard season. Uh, Zach Cunningham, he's, you know, they did a a max restructure on his contract, so he's on a base salary this year of 990, and they pushed a ton of money into the future. So given – He's dropped down to where he's basically coming in on sub packages. He's playing 15, 20% of the snaps. You know, he just doesn't fit in, in Lovey Smith's scheme. And it, there was some talk of maybe Ken, Cunningham being lumped into the uh, Watson trade with Miami. But at this point, I mean, it seems like maybe a conditional seventh or something like that that the team could get. I mean, yes, he's cheap for the rest of this year, which is great for – those, you know, over half the league has, you know, five and a half million dollars or less in cap space. So the the fact that Zach Cunningham would cost a team approximately $700,000 for the rest of the year in cap and cash, even though that spikes to next year when his, his salary resumes back to the normal rate. But even 
given those parameters, I don't feel like you can get more than like maybe a seventh for him. Yeah. So I will say, you know, I'm going to be biased. He's a Vanderbilt guy. He was actually there when I was there. Um, so I remember his play fondly and, and he's a guy that unfortunately, and we've actually had conversations about this at, at PFF where the modern linebacker and what they're asked to do because of, you know, the, the, the RPO game and, and teams high lowing, you know, zone linebackers where they're just, they're just creating so much conflict for off-ball linebackers that it, it has become one of the hardest positions to play. And he was always a sideline-to-sideline guy that would get you, you know, 17 tackles in the run game, but just never a strong coverage player. And, and that just hasn't gotten better. And like you said, and now it's leading to, you know, he also was a guy who was playing, you know, almost 100% of snaps for full seasons and and a true, you know, Ironman. And, and that's just not – you can't really get away with that anymore with him. So, yeah, I don't see, I don't see a team taking on that deal. Um, even if you just look at, I mean, he, Jalen Smith, who, yes, has, has fallen off a little bit from when he was a very good player, but, you know, gets cut in the middle of the season. The Dallas Cowboys decide to just go with some youth and, and change things up. But there is just not a very strong market for off-ball linebackers. So, yeah, I mean, maybe if Houston, I actually like the idea a lot of, you know, couching him in and, and forcing a team to take him along with maybe a Brandon Cooks. I know you said it's not likely or, or Deshaun Watson. That actually makes more sense, uh, I think, than anything else. All right, we'll move on. So two more names. Lonnie Johnson, the safety. He was uh, originally a third-round draft pick, brought in as a cornerback, and after two seasons, the team transitioned him back to safety. He still has some, uh, we'll call them brain farts back there in center field. He's been mixing back and forth. He got semi-benched last week when the team brought in Terrence Brooks to play a little, you know, give him a little more playing time over Lonnie Johnson, but Lonnie Johnson's still making plays. He had another interception last week. He's athletic, very, very athletic, very raw player, has a good sense and sense for the ball. Just getting him to get to get the cerebral part of the game is the part that's, that's going to, that's still got to come for him. And so they have, he has this year and the following year after that on his contract, you know, like I said, he was a third-round draft pick, but he's still grading out, you know, middle, you know, pretty much a just above-average player in terms of PFF grading. So, at that point, based on his draft pedigree, based on the contract that you have left, I can't see probably like a fourth and maybe a day-three swap or a future, like you said, a future day-three pick. I don't know if you've studied Lonnie Johnson yet or not on, on trade value, but just wanted to pick your brain on that one. Yeah, so so that's another one where it's interesting. I mean, he is he's very versatile. He, he is a you know he's a big guy. He's an athlete. It's almost kind of strange he doesn't play more near the line of scrimmage, and he kind of is that that true you know deep third you know free safety a lot of the time because he, he looks like a guy that maybe has the build to occasionally come down in the box and, and do different things. But that's a, I have I analyzed him specifically. No, but the safety position another one maybe even worse than linebacker not even maybe it is it, it, the market there is so you know just depreciated and just and just poor i mean you get fred warner and darius leonard signing for you know almost 20 million per year and yes jamal adams did eventually go ahead and get that 17 and a half million per year deal but as you and i know and as you know from the larry tunsil contract you have to take those deals once a guy gets traded for multiple first round picks with a bit of a grain of salt and recognize that the value is going to be inflated because of the leverage the player has. So the team, I, I think NFL teams, frankly, have made it very clear that they do not value the safety position, which, look, if I'm honest, that, that, that PFF does, doesn't agree with that. And, and the league probably you know, has more evidence to suggest that they know why the market is suppressed and why they don't pay that position. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say day three for him. I, I think he is an intriguing player, though. I think you know a team could maybe throw in a fifth-round pick um, just to see what they have in him because he does – he has the ability to do a lot of things that not a lot of guys can do athletically. I think, like you said, I haven't watched him as closely as you for sure, but it probably is the mental component holding him back, and if that gets corrected, he could be a really good player because he is he's fun to watch. Yeah, all right. And then we'll move on to pass rusher, and this is one that's just bugging the crap out of me. So Charles Menehue, he has been kind of in and out with the organization. He – just by all accounts from the outside, from my from my outside looking in, just doesn't seem to be buying into the whole Coley uh, Casario regime. He was a fifth round pick. He was obviously a steal out of that fifth round pick coming out of University of Texas. He can play inside. He can play outside on the four man front. He's still leading this team and pressures. You know, Jonathan Grenard is coming up, chasing up to him, but. You know, the, the pressure rate among the defensive line, Charles Menehue, even with missing two games, is still 
is still your top pass rusher. And so he's the third year, third, he's in the third year of his contract with, you know, with one more year left. And I think he's outplayed his, his draft slot. I think hopefully the team can work it out with him and keep him around. Cause I think he's one of the foundational players for this defense going forward. But given his draft pedigree and his continued performance, even when he's been healthy scratches, I think I think you could potentially net a third round with him just on the sake of the fact that, you know, whereas you're saying off-ball linebackers and safeties don't have as much value, being a pass rusher who has the versatility to play 4-3 on the edge or slide inside, I think that to me brings you know brings has a potential to bring a little more draft value back, potentially a third rounder. I completely agree with you there. I think, honestly, more and more as time goes on, too, we're, we're seeing defenses that want to be more multiple up front, that want to be able to show different looks. And, yeah, he can kick inside, you know, three to five technique in a 3-4, or he can play out on the edge in a 4-3. And, yeah, he has an 83 pass rush grade for us so far this year. You know, very much so one of the better pass rush grades. Uh, yeah, still only played five weeks, but, you know, still obviously producing a lot. Had at least three pressures in every game but one so far this season. I'm with you there. He is a good player, and I think the positional flexibility and versatility makes him an intriguing player. But it's interesting you mentioned that he's just not vibing. The impression I always got, you know, I'm from Chicago. Players seem to love playing for Lovey Smith, particularly guys on defense and particularly guys in that front seven. Um, You know, his Tampa 2 is all about pressure, and it's interesting that he's not enjoying it because he is producing. So, like you said, maybe they can rectify that because that might be better then, I mean, look, if you get a third-round pick, that's probably pretty solid. But, yeah, I wouldn't take a bad compensation for a good player if you can find a way to fix it. Yeah, and I don't think it has anything to do with Lovey. I think I think it's more so um, some folks in the, the front office, specifically on the uh, football ops side. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. We had five requests. Looks like one person dropped out, and then I saw old buddy Evan McPhillips in here moseying around, but he looked like he dropped out as well. Evan used to work at PFF. So I'm trying to remember who was up first. We're going to jump to some questions before we dive into some league-wide stuff. So we'll go to Balake. Send him some speaking rights. Balake? Oh, hey there, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing all right. I'm actually in Chicago as well, uh, Brad. So uh, or I don't know if you're there or if you're just from there. But... Um, I had a couple questions in regards to kind of some of these skill players and who could maybe be offloaded. You guys kind of hit on Brandon cooks. Um, and you said some local people didn't think that he was going to be moved. What do you guys personally think about that? And, you know, guys like David Johnson being moved, you know, someone that has some, maybe some name um, notoriety left in the league that might, you know, provide some, you know, decent trade value in return or Mark Ingram even. I don't, I don't know that David Johnson has any trade value whatsoever. I mean, he's only, I mean, he's only due to make, I think, I think he's on a $1.25 million base salary and he's got some incentives and per-game roster bonuses. But I, I don't know that his name value alone with the, the glut of, of young running backs available out there, both on the street and on practice squads, I just don't think he has any trade value whatsoever. I mean, you'd have to just have a team that just – was in love with him, maybe like Bruce Arians or somebody from his Arizona days or something like that. But I mean, it to me, I don't think you could even get a seventh for David Johnson at this point. And beyond, you know, it, the same would be said for Mark Ingram. And I think Mark Ingram, I don't think Ingram would be moved. I think Ingram, along with Cooks, are the two culture leaders in this locker room, if you wanted to put it that way. And we've talked about this in, in the past past shows on here that I think you know and I've I've been out training camp I've seen how Ingram is he is very vocal very very much a culture leader very much selling what Coley is trying to sell and I think the team needs him here to continue selling that to the rookies and to the young players as they go through the rest of the season so I don't know that you have any really trade value with them as far as skill players across I mean, maybe Jordan Aikens, but I, I can't buy into that as either as well. I mean, he's in the last year of his contract, so that would just be an extremely short-term rental, and he's a little bit older. And like you said, you know, Brandon Cooks, he's the only skilled player on this offensive side that has any kind of trade value. And, and you know, I potentially, like I said, I thought he was a, a potential trade asset, but it seems like that's not going to be the case. 
Yeah, Troy, I think you brought up a great point, which, um, you know, will, will probably lead to fewer trades that, you know, frankly, only you and I would get excited about these trades that are going to be prevented. But the, the, the practice squad players really are an impediment to, to teams making those, you know, seventh round pick for, for a vet here, those type of moves. When you can just poach a, a solid, you know, rotational player, the good players, good veterans, because you can now carry veterans with, you know, multiple accrued seasons on your practice squads. It does, I think, I think it will limit the amount of those bottom of roster moves that we see year to year. Um, as specifically for David Johnson, yeah, I don't think there's any value there. And just a quick tidbit on Mark Ingram. Um, I had a buddy who was on the Saints practice squad for a bit when he was back in New Orleans. Um, he defined him as like the most important. Him and Cam Jordan, he said, were they were the locker room and, and they just meant so much um, in every aspect of what they did. And I do think he probably, Coley probably values him a great deal. Interesting, interesting. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the question, man. Um, and just just one little side note on what you were talking about with uh, poach and practice squad. The change in the CBA makes that a little bit easier as well because you can no longer offer a practice squad player a higher value contract. That was kind of like the little stopgap that teams would say, no, just stay here and we'll pay you the same amount of money that you would earn on the active roster you know, say we'll say it's a rookie. You know, we'll put you at the six hundred sixty thousand dollar pay rate and just stay on the practice squad. You can't do that anymore with the new CBA. You're limited on what you can pay the players, which actually should facilitate a little more movement off of practice squads. Let's see here. We'll jump. I'm trying to remember who was up next. I think Todd. Todd is a a regular on here. Let me get you. There we go. Connecting, so we'll get Mr. Todd B. Welcome back, sir. How you doing? Oh, uh, we're doing. It's good to hear. Uh, I got two questions. Okay. Uh, the first, well, it's kind of a comment on, I know you guys covered Deshaun, but I think, honestly, right now would be the best time to trade him, uh, just because if he sits another however many months until next year and then if the legal issues become another issue and then he has to sit out another say eight games that's basically a year and a half of his I, what he's going to be 25 26 by then and that's basically a year and a half wasted i know that's i know that's not a huge and like if you're looking long term 10 years down the road but it's a lot right now and might hurt compensation but as for my second thing, I was just seeing who you guys think they might lock up long-term that's currently on the roster. Sorry if you hear my dogs. Um, because there's a lot of one-year contracts, and there's not a lot of people. It's not a lot of people going to be left on the roster after this year. So I'm just seeing what you think and the lack of trade value with the people that you have. I'm just seeing where you guys' heads are at with that. So in terms of, of extensions, you know, we, we've been kind of – Every week we've been kind of going through and giving our opinion on, you know, with each different guest that we have each week, who who do you think is worth re-signing, you know, with this gigantic free agent class that the team brought in. And and today, if you, if you ask me that, to me, it's Malik Collins on the interior who just continues to have pressure, and, and that was just a horrible roughing the passer call on him. So I think Malik Collins, I think Kamu Grugier-Hill at the linebacker is another name that they need to potentially bring back. Justin Britt, I'm wavering on. Initially, I was very much in favor of bringing him back, but now I'm not quite so sure. So, you know, from there, and then there was one other name, one other name. Christian Kirksey, I mean, he's he's playing well, but he's 30 so that's a little bit of concern for me. Desmond King is another player that you could potentially bring back if the money stays low. You know, he's making $3 million this year if the money stays around there. And then at this point, since there's no potential quarterback next year, I think you have to look at Tyrod Taylor as coming back as well. So that would be my, my potential players. As far as extension-wise, let me jump over to – let's see here. I know – just you know, we got Justin Reed coming up, and I'm. I've talked about him in the past. He's very much he knows this is a business, and I think he's just going to go wherever the money wherever the money sends him. So, 
whether the whether the Texans are willing to make him, he's not obviously not going to be in the realm of the top tier safety pay, but I think he's going to be in that ten to twelve million dollar range. So that's one player that's going to be a potential extension candidate. Farrell Brown, he's on a one year deal. He started off hot, has really kind of come back down to earth of what we what he should have been. So that's another player that you can look at. And then Lonnie Johnson will be. Uh, Let's see, this will be his third year, so he'll be eligible for an, an extension after this. So, unfortunately, there's not too many players. You know, Charles Amenehu, another player, will be three years in. So, those rookie players, you can extend them after three years. That would be my main group of players that you want to look at as far as extensions. Excellent. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. All right, Todd. Thanks for joining, and thanks for always listening in, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no. All right, so we got two other requests. We'll get to uh, Elias and uh, and uh, Madden the Legend. We'll get to you here in a minute. Let me jump back over to my my talking points. So we'll kind of expand on out of the Texans. So Brad, who who do you envision? And I know cap cap space is going to be a major a major player in this because, like we talked about earlier, you know the Texans are sitting at like six point nine million in cap space and are actually like 10th among teams with overall cap space. So who do you see as potential buyers and sellers beyond the Texans for this trade deadline? Sure. So big time sellers, I think Philadelphia will be selling. They've obviously already traded Zach Ertz to the Arizona Cardinals. I think they could move some young edge rushers, maybe a veteran and Ryan Kerrigan, if someone wants to take him on, Uh, I think they will, you know, Howie Roseman is not afraid to make a move. Uh, I mentioned that before. So I think they'll sell, um, there, there's a lot of teams where this week's outcome is also big. I mean, Pittsburgh Steelers, they're 3-3, three and three, going to put the Cleveland Browns this week. If they lose at Cleveland, the AFC North will have two 5-2 and two teams and a 5-3 and three team, and then the 3-4 and four Pittsburgh Steelers. At that point, if they're not selling, I, I think that's just kind of silly. Um, so that them definitely, obviously you're going to have your, your Lions, your Jaguars, your Jets, so on and so forth. Um, as for buyers, you know, I, I think it's it's largely going to be the NFC. It seems like there's an arms race, uh, specifically for cornerback. Obviously, Carolina Panthers have made two moves now for C.J. Henderson and Stephon Gilmore. We saw the Buccaneers go ahead and sign Richard Sherman, trying to you know add to that position group as well. And I think you know Arizona. Uh, you, you look at Tampa; they're they're really good teams that have a couple holes, particularly in the secondary. And I think there's going to be guys available they can target. So I'm, I'm watching for those teams. And then over in the AFC, I guess this is a, more of an AFC-centric um, you know, podcast. I, I think, obviously, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to make small moves here and there. I, I was told by someone I, I trust they are looking to make a move along the defensive line. Um, whether that be a trade or they just go ahead and sign someone, I, I was not given specifics, but I was told watch out for Kansas City to make a move. Uh, to bolster their defensive line. And, and again, that's from someone I, I trust and respect. So, um, you know, beyond that, you know, could Buffalo make a small move to also maybe bolster their defensive line, maybe add another outside corner? Uh, I think so. Um, but, yeah, for me, it seems like the NFC and a lot of those teams that are off the hot starts, I think they're going to kind of push the pedal to the metal a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, speaking of, like, KC and, and looking to bolster up their defensive line, I think, like, maybe a Nick Williams out of Detroit, you know, I think he's definitely playing outside of, you know, well above. I was looking at his uh, OTC evaluation. He was evaluated at $4.3 million, uh type of play right now. So, you know, players like that, Dante Fowler, D. Ford, which I know that one, that one's a little tricky with D. Ford because he's got a $4.6 million injury guarantee in 2022, and I think that's going to scare a lot of teams off. Akeem Hicks. I think yeah, I think that'll scare. That'll scare. I think every team off. There yeah. was a, there were some questions if he was going to even play this season. Yeah, Akeem Hicks. He's. I don't know. I, I'm worried about his salary. He's due a little under five hundred five million for the rest of the year, but that might be another another defensive lineman to look at. And then you mentioned you mentioned Pittsburgh, and the two names I had here for him for Pittsburgh was Joe Hayden, and uh, James Washington. Joe Hayden, to me, is a very interesting name, and you had him listed in your article as a potential trade asset. You know, as you know, as you mentioned in the article, he, he was looking for an extension. Pittsburgh said no. He's still a very good cornerback by all, by all intents and purposes. And to me, I was kind of looking at it fr- from the Darius Slay model 
whereas Darius Slay, I think, got a two and a, a two and a three. So I was thinking maybe Joe Hayden, you know, a three and a six, maybe a fourth round and a five, but you're also going to have to give him an extension, whether it be this year or in the offseason. Yeah, so so Slay was a three and a five to go to Philly from uh, uh, Detroit. You. So that might, yeah, so that might that might shift a little bit. Yeah, I think the thing too there though is is that I mean Darius Slay is considered still a true lockdown number one outside corner that if you want to line up in man coverage in every snap, which you know in Philadelphia they're certainly not doing that and they shouldn't, but if you wanted to in theory you could do that with the Darius Slay. Whereas Joe Hayden is a very good player, um, but never been considered that. He's, he's a zone corner, always been a zone corner. Um, and yeah, again, playing at a high level still, even at an older age. But yeah, I think a, a mid-round pick for him would be interesting. Um, he does have the bigger salary, though. Uh, you know, where a team would have to potentially make some room or, or move some things around to bring him in. But like I said, if, if Pittsburgh's you know in fourth in their division, and there's a lot of AFC teams vying for those wild cards, and they did kind of spend a decent amount at the right at the end there in free agency. You know, bringing in Melvin Ingram, uh, you know, trading for Joe Schobert, making all those moves. You can kind of unravel that and go the opposite direction if things didn't work out. I don't think anyone would blame you for being bullish and trying to, you know, get back to the playoffs in Ben Roethlisberger's last season. That's fine. You should do that. But obviously, that's it's not, not looking too great. Um, I would. I just want to jump in too. You mentioned Akeem Hicks in Chicago. Um, yeah, ten point four million dollar base salary there. So you know, about five plus. You know, for a team acquiring, makes things complicated. Um, and he doesn't have any, you know, years beyond it. So they couldn't, I, you know, I guess they could add void years and, and restructure and do a whole messy operation to get him, get him elsewhere. Um, and then Nick Williams as well. So both of those guys, I had them both going to the Los Angeles Chargers um, because both of them worked with Brandon Staley when he was with the Chicago Bears back in 2018. Um, you know, they had the familiarity there and the Los Angeles Chargers, by all accounts, are desperate for interior defensive lineman help. They're another team I should have mentioned. I, I think they will be buyers. Um, they have some space. They have obviously the rookie contract quarterback and a lot of other, you know, talented, you know, your blue chip left tackle and Rashawn Slater on a rookie deal. I think they can and should spend a little bit, be a little bit aggressive. Have you heard anything on the tight end market? Because I, I wrote down Evan Ingram out of uh, out of the Giants of New York and Ricky Seals Jones, who I think's in Washington. And the main reason I put Ricky Seals Jones on here was I mean he's playing well this year but the the emergence of Logan Thomas there and as a tight end kind of pushed Seals Jones down so have you heard anything on the tight end market out there at all yeah so uh, the, the only name I heard and, and and actually it's it's kind of um probably been bolstered a bit was Eric Ebron in Pittsburgh and that essentially they took Penn State stud tight end Pat Fryermuth in the second round this year and pretty much right out of the gate, we, we, we've done a lot of studies at PFF about learning curves. And traditionally, tight end is one of the steepest. It's very hard to adjust to the NFL game at tight end. But Fryermuth has had no issue. And every single week, he's getting more snaps. He's out-targeting Eric Ebron. He's out-snapping him. He's frankly a better player in every facet of football, I think, already. So Ebron came out and made some comments about how he's frustrated with his, you know, he's only played about 40% of snaps. And he's trying to stay positive and not trying to create a problem or anything like that. And I think... People maybe associate him with, you know, creating some hubbub in Detroit. I don't think he wants to do that. I don't think he will. Um, but I definitely could see a scenario where a team thinks he could be, you know, just a nice depth option at tight end. You mentioned Evan Ingram. Um, you know, I, I think he is a possibility, although New York apparently had some decent offers last year on the table and did not take them. They, they seem to like Evan Ingram still. Um, so maybe they, they're unwilling to move him, but they, they also probably should. Yeah. So we'll jump over here. We got I got one question in on, on DM, and then we got a couple of folks in here who are still waiting. Uh, so one question on DM from Jay Mills. I'll just be able to answer it pretty quickly. So if a Watson trade to Miami somehow materializes, how does Miami's cap situation play into it? Would Houston have to eat some of Watson's cap to facilitate the trade? Don't think it happens. All right, so I don't think Houston would be willing to eat any of the, the – the salary with Watson so at this point is going to be on Miami to make the room so right now they're sitting around 2.3 million dollars in cap space according to OTC so at that point they would have to make some moves and they they have some players that they can do that with whether it's Xavier Howard Byron Jones Emmanuel Ogba they'd have to they'd have to do a avoid your deal with him but they have two or three contracts that they would have to restructure to create I think upwards of $8 million in cap space to be able to take on the Watson trade and have a little bit of operating room. 
So I don't think Houston would eat any money. I certainly hope they wouldn't, especially with, with the player that they're sending off. But, you know, Jay Mills, to answer your question, I think Miami would have to do all the legwork on their end to make sure that they can fit it in. They they certainly can't do it after the fact. They have to do it on the front end. So we've got two more questions here. So Elias and, and um, Madden will get to you all. So Elias, we're going to send you some speaking rights. Connecting. All right, Elias, go ahead, buddy. Hi. Sorry about that. No um, problem. I, I think my um, – No, you're good. Go ahead. I had a general question about, um, like, kind of coverage of um, of uh, team spending relative, I guess, relative to, like, the MLB um, in, in media. I, I kind of um, – I've kind of noticed that sometimes uh, I uh, – teams – or um, when, when uh, spending is being covered, like spending for new players, um, that uh, maybe uh, some, like ESPN maybe won't or, – or other companies maybe won't uh, – uh, talk about whether the team is willing to spend at all. Um, and, and I was, and I kind of, I I've noticed that that maybe isn't as, uh, um, as big of a, a problem in, in like covering MLB teams. I was wondering if you guys thought that was true at all. I've known, I know that over the cap is pretty explicit about like, yeah, this team like doesn't want to spend. Um, and I, I was, I was, yeah, sorry. About no, that. that's a, no, that's a great question. And I, I preach this a lot to 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 my followers as well that that cash is king and um you know a relatively new site that's out there called the thirty third team I think that's the name of it the thirty third yeah. team uh you know it's got a lot of ex ex NFL executives in there and and they they had a uh, a salary cap guy who worked for uh, Dimitrov in in Atlanta for a long time writing an article today as well that cash is king and. You're exactly right, Elias. I mean, that is not covered nearly enough, in my opinion. You know, every team has a cash budget. Yes, there's cap dollars and how that's allocated and how those dollars are allocated to the cap. And to me, my opinion is, is the salary cap is essentially an accounting function of how you're allocating and how that money is allocated towards the cap and how it's counted towards the cap. You know, it fluctuates year to year of teams of how their cash is spent versus amount of cap dollars spent. And it's, you know, and it's the way it's kind of written and, and talked about is cash to cap ratio and how much cash you're spending versus your cap dollars. And it fluctuates, you know, like Texans last year were way above way high on the cash to cap ratio because they had a lot of extensions with Tunsil and Watson and they spent, they were actually the highest spender among the league in cash and then you've got teams like Cincinnati, Indianapolis, who are just don't have their owners, whether it's they don't have the cash. I mean, they have the cash, but I mean, they just don't have the cash budgets that the Atlanta, that Seattle has, that Philadelphia has, that oddly enough, a, a publicly traded company, Green Bay, they're usually one of the top spenders in cash as well. Whereas... It, it's interesting because you know, I track this, and I think I did it the last 10 years. I, I had to go back and retweet it on my timeline, but you, I've captured the, the cash spending for the last 10 years compared it to wins, and there's little no correlation to that, unfortunately. But, you know, Los Angeles Rams with Kroenke, and they, those teams are just willing to spend cash overhand, no problem. Whereas some teams are very budget friendly, and oddly enough, one of the richest owners out there, Jerry Jones, is actually one of the cheapest when it comes to cash spending on on player rosters. So it's a great point, Elias, and and uh, Brad, I'll let you talk here in a second, but it's definitely not covered nearly enough. I, I think people just will just jump straight to cap space like it's nothing, and you'll see sometimes you'll see teams with forty or fifty million dollars in cap space in the off season and, and fans are like, Oh, why aren't they spending money? They got all this cap space. Well, it doesn't matter if they don't have the cash budget for it. Maybe they have $40 million in cap space, but they may not have the cash to cover that whole thing. And so that's a, that's a great point. And it's a very good question. It's something that needs to be discussed more often in my opinion. Yeah. I'm obviously with you hundred percent. I would say my, you know, two answers. One is cynical and, and conspiratory, I suppose, but you know, I frankly think the NFL does a very good job with their media partners and, and they are good at controlling the narrative certain times. And 
you know, I don't think they want to, you know, th those MLB conversations are tough, but also those MLB conversations are happening because there isn't a salary cap floor, which the NFL does have, um, you know, it's, it's not a set one year, it's rolling three and four year um, kind of cohorts, but, but nevertheless, there is a minimum. And I think that guards them from a lot of that conversation. Um, Cause it's, it's funny TC, you mentioned, you know, the Bengals, the one that I always jump to and, and, you know, no offense to Cincinnati and the Cincinnati Bengals, but, like everyone knows, like they, they the joke when I worked in Minnesota with the Vikings was like, if if our department has ten people, you know, then Cincinnati's has five. Like that's, and they're not talking just football; they're talking every aspect of the organization. And I think it's also easy to forget that these are, you know, fortune. These are companies. These are these are big big companies that have a football arm to them. But there's so much more there. Um, and, and spending money on the other aspects, you know, can lead to wins probably as well. Um, we'd never be able to track it, but I, I'm confident in that assessment. But, yeah, that is a great question and, again, a good point because it's, it doesn't get brought up really much at all. Yeah, and just, a, just a, a funny anecdote story real quick. So when Jonathan Joseph signed with Houston back in 2011, right after the lockout, he came from Cincinnati. And there's it's a funny story. He went to go get a drink, a Gatorade or something out of the vending machine, and he didn't have to pay for it, and he just – he it caught him off guard. He looked at one of the other players. He's like, "I don't have to pay for this in Cincinnati. You got to pay for this." Oh my god, <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, Elias, you got anything else, buddy? Before we get uh, Madden here, before we shut it down. No, I I really appreciate the, the you know how candid your answers were. Um, I you know it, it's it can be frustrating at times, especially um, you know I I have no idea what um how uh, I I I've often I've been pleasantly. Um, I like how Jerry Jones spends his money because I'm a Washington fan. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I, I've always wondered if, if, um, if the way they extend certain players and maybe don't spend as much in free agency, I, I, I know you mentioned they, they don't shell out, shell out as much for cash. Um, I, I didn't know that, uh, the Packers did, um, because of, I, I've heard similar things about how they, they don't, you know, dip, or at least during the Ted Thompson era, they yeah, the but Packers I, I, don't really. They didn't. Well, before Ted Thompson area, you're exactly right. He was very much of homegrown. We're going to extend our own guys. He didn't dev out into uh, into free agency like Gutenkus has. But over the ten year period of the last CBA, Green Bay I think was like fourth in cash spending, which kind of shocked me. <laughs> but you know they're spending on their own guys at least during the Ted Thompson era. So you know that's you know it is what it is. And I appreciate it, Elias. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciated the show. It, it was great. Thank you. All right. Look at uh, Madden the Legend. That's an outstanding Twitter handle name. <laughs> Let's see here. Hit that button. Connecting. Brad, you okay on time? Yeah, of course. All right. Madden, just go ahead and un unmute yourself, bud. Hello. Hey. Um. Yep. I, I think Watson's going to get traded. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think he's going to get traded one way or another. It's just it's more of a matter of when and not if. And and also, um, I think that the, the owners should sell the team. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, you know, that's going to be something that fans are really, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people that want, that want Cal McNair to sell the team, but at the end of the day, he's the owner, and I, he's been so heavily involved with this city. I don't, I don't envision that. I don't even see that happening anytime soon. So, all right. So we got uh, DNA fit, DNA fit one, connecting. Go ahead, man. Hello. Hello. Yes. Yeah, hey, what's up, guys? Hey. Uh, so going back to the big kind of macro uh, talk on uh, on cap, uh, I'm, I'm a Saints fan. Actually, Tulane alum. I'm proud of Tulane alum. Hey-o, hey There you go. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're a Saints fan, but, you know, I usually hear a lot of criticism about how they run the cap, you know, just kind of kicking the can, wondering if y'all share the same sentiment. And if so, you know, why do they do it like that? Well, I, I would say to that it's kind of Dallas does the same thing, and they get – both those teams get a lot of grief with the way that they have to constantly restructure contracts to kick the can to make space. And there is a little validity to 
giving some criticism to that, but if it's part of your model, part of your contract structure, especially with Dallas, then it's perfectly fine. If that's how your organization and how your cap structure is, cap structure is built and how you structure your contracts to build in those restructures, then that's then that's perfectly fine. It's just people have a, a people have a just a, a negative view against restructures when if it's a part of your model and part of your of your ongoing plan, then it's perfectly fine in my eye my eyes. They just they got a little they, they just got stuck with Drew Brees and, and how they were restructuring that contract over and over and over and it, it came to a head this year and they still were able to get out of it without too big of a hit. So in my opinion, if it's done the right way if it's part of your structure, if it's part of your contract structure, if it's part of your plan going forward, then it's perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I would echo those sentiments. I would say, you know, the Saints, we're talking about cash spenders. You know, Gail Benson is probably has one of the you know most open checkbooks for any owner in the NFL. And, and there is no player. If they want a player, they, they will make it happen and make it work. Obviously, we know Bradley Roby, you know, got traded there and they had to facilitate that move and, and move some things around just to make that happen. So. I wouldn't say I would, you know, I criticize it. It's obviously, it makes things more challenging. But I think the thing that gets lost is if you have Drew Brees as your quarterback or an Aaron Rodgers or, you know, a Ben Roethlisberger, why would you not do this? Like, why would you not restructure some deals, push money down the line, treat the cap as a five-year living thing, which in reality it is? Um, I think the thing now where I've been kind of critical of them is, and look, they're four and two. I I think they're not a very good four and two team, but – they're doing it now still, and, and they're pushing all this money into the future. And 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 Jameis Winston might not be cheap next year. And they, you know, Teron Armstead might get they re- reset the market at left tackle. So it, it's just gonna it's gonna keep continuing to be difficult. As opposed to if they could just kind of flush it out, take all their lumps, and then kind of start over. Do the Reggie um, McKenzie have, maneuver. Yeah, yeah. We appreciate the answer, guys. All right, I appreciate it, guy. All right, thanks so much. All right, so we're we're five minutes past our uh, our time, and um, you know, Brad, that was that was a great session, man. I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Um, just tell the folks where they can find your work, Twitter handle, all that good stuff. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I wanted to keep this till the end. I'll share this. Um, I haven't shared this anywhere. I heard this a while back. Um, one player so far that I've heard that contractually it honestly makes no sense because he's on a franchise tag um but i have heard alan robinson the wide receiver in chicago there are at least some some conversations happening around the nfl about him again how they how they worked it out contractually i do not know um but i, I did hear that from someone i you know again i, I trust and, and respect their their opinion so that, that that could be interesting but anyways um you can find me on twitter at pff underscore brad and i'm of course putting out content on pff.com fairly regularly Got a couple of trade articles up now, and actually the first, you know, free agency look ahead for 2022 should be out sometime this week or next week. Outstanding, and so we'll definitely have to get you back on in the off season when uh, when uh, free agency is approaching. If you're if you're open to that, and you know this was this was fantastic. It was great, great for me at least to kind of get out from the the Texans for a little bit. It was good to discuss some uh, league wide stuff. So. That was fun for me, and I appreciate you taking the time. And, and one little known fact between everybody, I, I can't take full credit for the name of this podcast being Cap and Trade. Brad actually <laughs> signaled this to me a long time ago when we were I was looking at like newsletters. When I had shut down TexasCap.com, I was looking at different ways to get my information out there, and, and Brad was came up just out of the blue, just like Cap and Trade, and it, and it rang, and it kept with me, and... So thank you for that as well, Brad. And, <laughs> you know, like I said, I appreciate the time, man. Um, we'll, we'll stay in touch this next seven days for sure to see if anything crazy goes down. And um, I hope to have you back on, especially, especially in the coming uh, off season, whenever uh, things get back going, when we head into free agency. And I appreciate the time, man. Yeah, thank you. And, of course, happy to come back uh, when, when things get rolling. All right. Well, with that, another episode of Cap and Trade in the Books. And we will close it down and – we will uh, tweet out the podcast later this week, and thank you for everybody. We had you know upwards of seventy eight and seventy five folks at some point, so I got to go check in on my Astros. Hopefully, they're not getting beat too bad. And uh, with that, we will shut it down. And I appreciate everybody. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.